Has the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity toward Taiwan changed? President Biden says no. This just one day after he suggested the end of that position. But what are experts saying? Four leading Indo-Pacific nations vow to stand together to keep the region free and open. They say they're keeping an eye on China. Subway cars made by a Chinese company removed from service in Boston. This after a series of accidents over the past three years. Beijing tightens control over its COVID-19 narrative inside the country. One of our team members shares their firsthand experience. And data research tells us that investing in Chinese stocks may be a bad idea. Return is low, very low, compared to other markets. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. President Biden reaffirmed that the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan has not changed. This just one day after he suggested the end of that position, saying he was willing to use force to defend Taiwan. Here's more. Following a Monday speech about U.S. military support for Taiwan, President Joe Biden was asked if U.S. strategic ambiguity on Taiwan is dead. The president said no. Our policy has not changed at all. I stated that when I made my statement yesterday. He also did not answer a question about whether he would put troops on the ground to defend Taiwan. Biden's two comments appear to contradict each other. Some critics have even said he misspoke on the issue or simply made a gaffe. But one expert argued it wasn't a slip of the tongue. President Biden, when he was a senator, voted for the Taiwan Relations Act. He's visited Taiwan before. He's not new to foreign policy. So in my view, given where it was said in Japan, next to the Japanese prime minister, the context coming after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, I believe that this was not a gaffe. Under the Taiwan Relations Act, Washington is required to provide self-ruled Taiwan with the means to defend itself. But it has long followed the policy of strategic ambiguity toward the island. That is, leaving China to guess exactly what the United States would do if the Communist Party chose to invade. So I think President Biden's statement was not intended to signal a shift in U.S. policy. It was intended to clarify uh, how committed or how much support the United States uh, attaches to the Indo-Pacific region, as well as uh, U.S. attention on what's happening in terms of cross-strait dynamics. Tensions in the Taiwan Strait have gained renewed attention in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. According to Yin Sun from the D.C.-based Stimson Center, what Biden meant by military support can be interpreted in a number of ways. Well, of course, people would say that, oh, most directly, military intervening means American boots on the ground. Well, not necessarily. What we have done in Ukraine, that is intervention, but it does not involve direct troop deployment from the United States. That intervention could come in the form of training for Taiwan's military or additional weapons sales to the island. With all eyes on China, the four leaders of the Quad Alliance vowed Tuesday to stand together for a free and open Indo-Pacific region. The nations say they view China as a bigger challenge than Russia. NDD's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden and his counterparts from Australia, India and Japan met Tuesday in Tokyo to discuss strengthening ties in the Indo-Pacific region to uphold democracy. 
because that's what this is about, democracies versus autocracies, and we have to make sure we deliver. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida linked Russia's invasion of Ukraine to China's increasing aggression towards Taiwan. Beijing considers democratic Taiwan as part of its territory, and it's recently sent record numbers of warplanes near the island. Although Japan's leader didn't call out China by name, he said the Quad can't let an invasion happen in the Indo-Pacific. It is crucial that we gather together for the four countries to align and show the international community that we are strongly committed for our common vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. The White House says the Quad will focus on six main areas of cooperation. They include COVID-19 response and global health security, climate, critical and emerging technologies, cyber, space and infrastructure. Quad leaders also announced a Quad Fellowship Program and opened applications. The program will sponsor 100 students from Quad countries to study in the United States each year for graduate degrees in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. As the four countries' leaders been in Japan, Chinese and Russian military planes conducted joint military drills nearby. As they neared Japan's airspace, Japan scrambled its fighter jets to respond. Japan is calling the move from Beijing and Moscow a provocation. If you're planning to take the tea in Boston anytime soon, you may want to keep an eye out. That's what locals call the Massachusetts subway. But the transit system is having some problems. New Orange Line cars made by a Chinese state-owned train maker have again been removed from service, this time because of a brake issue. The incident follows a series of other problems and accidents that have taken place in the past three years. NDD's Chenny Wu tells us more. Last Thursday, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, or MBTA, suspended all Orange Line and Red Line trains after one of the vehicles experienced a problem. The investigation revealed that a bolt in the train's braking system had not been properly installed at the manufacturing plant. The MBTA's new fleet of Red and Orange Line cars were made by a Chinese state-owned company, CRRC. The train cars are assembled at the company's factory in Springfield. The Chinese company is under a nearly billion-dollar contract to deliver over 400 cars to replace the old fleet over the next few years. But since their debut in 2019, these new trains have failed at least five times. Last year, Orange Line trains were put out of service for five months after a train with about 100 passengers derailed. And just last month, a red line passenger was dragged to his death after his arm got caught in a closing car door. Authorities say the incident may have been the result of a defective door control system. The Boston Globe reported that MBTA officials were frustrated by the numerous technical issues and that their confidence in CRRC has been reduced due to past failures. The Orange Line trains returned to passenger service on Monday. Chenny Wu, NTD News. China's zero COVID-19 policy is ramping up in the capital city, Beijing. Now, residents are speaking up as anger sparks over new rules. Beijing is under more strict lockdowns, part of China's zero COVID policy. Some residents report that their entire residential compounds are being forced out in groups and transferred to quarantine facilities. 
And in some areas, authorities have started going door to door, sealing the doors to people's homes overnight. A social media post complaining about the situation offered more detail. The user explained the forced transfer began after nearly a month of lockdown and added that residents were not given protective clothing while in transit. The user described it as, quote, worse than shipping pigs. The post also described some of those being transferred, saying there were paralyzed seniors, uremic patients in need of dialysis, and pregnant women about to give birth. The Post notes that authorities in charge took little notice. Reports say residents were only given two hours to prepare for the move. Data shows that the compound described in the Post has 36 buildings, home to over 13,000 residents. Locals allege that authorities threatened to cut off water and electricity for anyone who refused to go. They said if you don't leave, the water and electricity will be cut off. Ridiculous, just ridiculous. Analysts say locals previously thought Beijing wouldn't face the same severe lockdowns Shanghai did, but the ramping up of rules and forced isolations suggests otherwise and shows what analysts called the, quote, absurdity and horror of the Chinese Communist Party's dynamic zero political campaign. They said if you don't leave, the water and electricity will be cut off. Ridiculous, just ridiculous. It's all the same in Beijing and Shanghai, even the entire country. That's dynamic zero COVID policy. The dynamic zero COVID-19 in the entire society. Video clips on social media reveal that the same large-scale transfers have also happened in other areas of Beijing. At the same time, Beijing authorities recently announced new antivirus controls including a week-long shutdown of public transportation in some districts until Saturday. According to China's official data, there are 14 areas in the country considered high risk for catching COVID-19 as of Sunday. All of them are in Beijing. Stores, commercial squares, and entertainment venues remain shuttered, while many residential compounds are requiring tenants to register for electronic passes, gadgets that will soon be needed to enter their homes. Beijing reported 48 new COVID-19 cases on Monday. Due to China's history of under-reporting virus data, NCD cannot verify that number. As the situation in Beijing shifts, the Chinese Communist Party is keeping tight control over its narrative inside the country. The following is a first-hand experience from one of my colleagues. Her mother lives in Beijing. Recently, she told my colleague not to call her anymore without explaining why. Later on, my colleague got more details from another family member. This is what her mother said. Earlier, she had gotten two phone calls from Chinese authorities. They said people from outside China have been calling people in China by phone, telling them rumors and lies about the pandemic and damaging China's reputation. Her mother was warned not to listen to those rumors. My colleague said her mother was scared by the two phone calls and believes her phone is being monitored by authorities. And what exactly did my colleague tell her mother over the phone? She simply passed on what's common knowledge for people living outside China, like how Omicron is less severe compared to earlier virus variants, and how life in the U.S. is going back to normal, and that in Shanghai, Many people have faced supply shortages under the city's lockdown and have had difficulty getting medical treatment. My colleague also suggested that her mother stockpile more food and necessities because nobody knows if Beijing is going to issue strict lockdown measures as in Shanghai. All this information contradicts what Chinese authorities say. 
They never told Chinese citizens that the Omicron variant symptoms are closer to getting sick with the common cold. They've also been saying the pandemic is still severe in the U.S., adding that Chinese people should be thankful to live in China, as lockdown measures have stopped the virus from spreading. What's more, Chinese state-run media have largely ignored the many deaths reported in Shanghai amidst the lockdown, many of which have been attributed to lack of medical treatment or food. State media also told Chinese citizens there was no need to stockpile food and that the situation was under control. Chinese stocks have had the worst performance among the world's largest stock markets. That's according to the Morgan Stanley Capital International, or MSCI's April data. Since it began in 1992, the MSCI China Index has returned only slightly over 1% per year. That's significantly lower than the returns of MSCI's Emerging Markets Index and its flagship Global Stock Index. Meanwhile, stock market investors in the U.S. have enjoyed higher gains. The MSCI USA Index has been generating an annual return of 11 percent since 1987. Kyle Bass is the chief investment officer of Heyman Capital Management. He told the Epoch Times in an interview, China uses the West's money and pays almost zero returns for enormous risk. And that fiduciaries should be sued for investing in the Chinese communist regime. Robin Parbrook is the co-head of Asian Equity Alternative Investments at Troiders, a global investment management firm. He warns it's important for investors to realize that stock market returns and economic growth do not correlate. The MSCI China Index consists of large and medium-sized company stocks that trade on both Chinese and global stock markets. Parbrook compared the performance of the MSCI China Index against that of MSCI indexes of other Asian countries in October. He discovered that Chinese stocks had been the weakest performance since 1992. According to the Institute of International Finance, or IFF, capital outflows from China in the first quarter of this year hit a new record. The reasons include COVID lockdowns, Beijing's clampdown on private companies, and China's strained relations with Western countries. Coming up, China's strict lockdown measures are still in place across the country. We look at how the shutdown is impacting American consumers. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Officials in Shanghai are pledging that soon they'll begin to ease restrictions that shut down factories. That's after weeks of lockdowns in China. Experts say the stagnation there is impacting the U.S. economy, and American companies blame the shutdowns for losses. What does this mean for consumers? Weeks of lockdowns in China have left their mark, and American consumers are also feeling the impact. It is going to be a painful time on prices from goods that come into America from China. And that's a lot of goods. Economic data for April shows China's industrial output, what factories produced, fell by 2.9 percent compared to last April. Last month, the world's largest container port in Shanghai was running at about half of its capacity. Companies can't find truck drivers to move cargo, choking off supply chains and increasing costs for companies. Experts say that's leaving American consumers waiting longer to get their goods and paying more for them. 
the orders will take a lot longer. If you thought it was bad in 2021, it's going to get worse in 2022. American companies like Apple, Amazon, Starbucks, Coca-Cola and General Electric are getting hit hard by China's lockdowns. Apple says it could lose up to $8 billion in sales in part by the lockdown. And recently, two of the world's biggest automakers, Volkswagen and Toyota, suspended production for weeks. And Tesla sold about 1,500 cars in mainland China in April, made it its Shanghai plant, a decline from March when it sold 65,000. Business needs predictability. Is it going to be six months, nine months? We don't even know when Shanghai is going to stop the lockdown. Meanwhile, U.S. hospitals are facing a shortage of contrast dye used in some X-ray, MRI and CT scans because the Chinese factory that produces it was shut down for weeks. Next, a movie depicts how some Chinese citizens took an unusual approach to exposing Beijing's propaganda. Some of them paid the ultimate price, sacrificing their lives to stand up to the Chinese regime's suppression. I was on the scene last night at the animation film's premiere in New York. The Human Rights Watch Film Festival is returning to New York after a two-year break. Supporting human rights, it just seems so awesome, especially in New York City, too. We're here at Lincoln Center at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, where we're about to watch Eternal Spring. Let's see who we can grab before that. We're very interested in this film because of the artistic dimension of it. Eternal Spring is a stunning new animation film which tells the story of brave members of Falun Gong or Falun Dafa, a spiritual practice with 100 million practitioners around the world. It was really good. I loved how unique the animation was. You totally really put a lot of passion and care into it. The massive group was tortured in China. Many were even killed by the Chinese Communist Party for simply believing in their faith. This was like something that I've never had any information on before. People are so affected by it, but it's not world-renowned and no one's talking about it. And so I just kind of want this to get out there and have people see this um, film. I met up with director and producer Jason Loftus right before the movie's U.S. premiere. We talked about what inspired him to make this movie, which took nearly six years to bring to fruition. I took my lead really from the people that I was seeing come out of China. And what I witnessed was people who were willing to sacrifice a lot more than I was facing in order to be able to speak the truth in the face of injustice. And I just figured if we don't do the same with the freedom um, that we have here, then, you know, we may regret that in the long run. So I think it's important that we use the freedom we have to speak up. And fortunately, I think there's a lot of people who agree with that. Loftus is also the CEO of his own gaming studio, producing video games that have grown in popularity worldwide, including China. But while producing the Eternal Spring movie, the Chinese government put immense pressure on his business, trying to stop him from releasing the film. So the video game I mentioned was being published by Tencent in China, which is a large media company. But in the midst of making these films, uh, the, the Chinese government contacted Tencent and forced them to cut ties with my company. But Loftus and his team persisted, releasing the film anyway. Sold out tonight at the Lincoln Center, which is really exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I also spoke to the comic book artist behind the movie, as well as one of the main characters, Da Xiong. He's worked on big comic book projects, including Star Wars and the Justice League. There are always people in this world who need to stand up and do the right thing, just like the sacrifices by the group of heroes depicted in this movie. The movie has already won many awards after premiering in Canada and Europe.
on its way to becoming a global success, even without the Chinese market. Go to the theater, <laughs> see this movie. It's a very powerful story. I highly recommend everyone seeing it. We just watched Eternal Spring. It was truly beautiful and touching. If you get the chance, come check it out. This was just the first stop on their U.S. tour, so there's lots still coming. Tiffany Meyer, NTD News, New York. To end today's episode, the U.S. has indicted a well-known Chinese dissident, saying he's been secretly spying for Beijing. But a longtime acquaintance of that dissident told NTD that's only part of the story and that there's a bigger problem. NTD's Juliet Song has more. This is Wang Shujun, a resident from Queens, New York. In the Chinese dissidents community there, Wang is pretty well known. He's the founder of a nonprofit that's anti-Chinese Communist Party and has been actively organizing various pro-democracy events in New York. Every time there's a pro-democracy event, he would actively call or text us to let us know. Our impression is that he's very enthusiastic about these things. But the plot thickened last week. That's when the Justice Department charged Wang and four other Chinese intelligence officers with espionage. The DOJ alleges Wang has been spying on his fellow dissidents and handing their information to Beijing. Based on the indictment, China arrested a Hong Kong democracy activist after Wang reported his information. The court document says Wang passes the information he has to four intelligence officers. They work for Beijing's top intelligence agency called the Ministry of State Security. One of the agency's goals is to influence foreign policy in other countries, including the U.S. The document says the U.S. is the agency's principal target and that is interested in collecting various kinds of information. For example, political, economic, and security policies that might affect Beijing. Also on the list are types of military and scientific information of value to the Chinese regime. On top of this, the document says the agency also wants information on dissidents. That includes Uyghur supporters, Tibetans, Falun Gong practitioners, Chinese pro-democracy activists, and Taiwan independence advocates. Towards that goal, the agency is known to recruit former Chinese nationals living in the U.S. People like Wang. In 1994, he came to the U.S. as a visiting scholar at the Columbia University. Wang later became a naturalized citizen. The DOJ arrested Wang in March. The four Chinese intelligence officers are still at large. As for Wang, a Chinese dissident that knows him says he's not surprised about Wang's arrest. Because the FBI talked to some of us Chinese dissidents and asked them for information on Wang Shujun. Hu Ping has known Wang for over a decade. They both work for the same nonprofit. There are some suspicions about his ties to the Chinese Communist Party in our community. He says Chinese dissidents are well aware of the spy issue. We think the Chinese Communist Party will for sure put spies among us. It will for sure recruit people from us to spy for them. He says Wang's case isn't unique. Some of the dissidents that are very active abroad and have gone back to visit China, Beijing will for sure send agents to contact them after they go back. And agents will usually ask them to keep in touch and provide them with information of interest to Beijing. Who adds that one thing does surprise him. In the overseas Chinese community, we're also seeing some groups with very open and direct ties to Beijing, and they go harass and threaten dissidents that are critical of Beijing. 
It's so obvious that they work for Beijing's interests, but the weird thing is these people seem to be left untouched by the U.S. government. Hu is calling on the U.S. to pay more attention to these groups. He believes that they may pose a greater threat than some of Beijing's trained spies. Juliet Song, NTD News. The United Nations human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, kicked off a high-stakes visit to China this week, a trip that has been long in the making. One will be discussing some very important issues, some sensitive issues. I hope this will help us build confidence and enable us to work together in advancing and Bachelet met with Chinese officials, including Foreign Minister Wang Yi, on Monday. Wang gave her a book as a present titled Excerpts from Xi Jinping's Statements on Respecting and Protecting Human Rights. Her six-day trip will also include a visit to Xinjiang. According to the UN High Commissioner's Office, Uyghur Muslims in the region have been illegally detained and subjected to forced labor, which Beijing has denied. Back in 2018, Bachelet said she wanted unrestricted access to Xinjiang. When asked if she could visit detention centers and prisons in the region, the Chinese foreign ministry said she was welcome to. But the ministry also rejected what it called political manipulation. Human rights groups are concerned that if Bachelet doesn't exert enough pressure on China, her post-trip report may not give a full picture of the situation and could be used by Beijing to justify its actions in Xinjiang. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.